right. Good morning, golfers. Welcome to On Par with Anthony Scorcia. Thank you for joining me on this beautiful October 2nd, 2021. Looking forward to talking with the director of social media for golf.com, Tim Riley, a uh, lifelong New Yorker and a uh, local uh, to me anyway, for those of you on the island on the South Shore uh, from Babylon, New York. So um, I've had the pleasure of playing with Tim and his colleague, Luke Denier. Um, and so uh, struck up quite a friendship and, and enjoy uh, our time together and looking forward to talking with him about his time at the Ryder Cup, creating content for golf.com and, um, and then a little bit about Long Island golf. So, uh, so looking forward to that conversation. You're listening to On Par with Anthony Scorcia. Pete's Golf. Since 1979, Pete's Golf has been practicing the art of club fitting and has been selected as a top 100 club fitter by Golf Digest magazine. At Pete's Golf, we use the best technology available to create an exceptional fitting experience for every customer that walks into our store. Visit Pete'sGolf.com or call 516-248-6891. That's 516-248-6891 and get your next set of clubs fit for you. Malvi's Equipment Company is the oldest distributor of power equipment on Long Island and has been serving the community for over 100 years. We have two locations for your convenience in Riverhead and Hicksville. Malvi's Equipment offers a diversified line of quality products for golf, sports, and turf, including Jacobson, Redexim Vertidrain, Smithco, and Turfco. We also carry Mahindra and New Holland tractors and construction equipment. Visit our website at malvisequipment.com or call us at 516-681-7600. Hey everyone, this is Chris Fochelle with Mizuno. There's no better feeling than having your clubs perfectly dialed in, and with over 2,000 authorized performance fitting partners nationwide, it couldn't be any easier to get custom fit using Mizuno's revolutionary Shaft Optimizer 3D. Find the right shaft and match it with any of our legendary grain flow forgings or our award-winning hot metal irons featuring high-strength chromoly. Visit MizunoGolf.com to find the nearest authorized fitter in your area. And remember, nothing feels like a Mizuno. All right, and we're back and pleased to be joined with the director of social media of Golf.com, Tim Riley. Tim, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Anthony. Thanks for having me on again. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. It's been a you know a crazy uh, two years, if you will. And um, but we're it's nice to have things back to sort of normal, and um, you know, and and nice to be uh, reengaged with you. How is everything going? It's going well. Yeah, it's crazy. This all started over a Twitter thread one day. You know, you go from Twitter to we're playing Best Page Red, the radio spot, and here we are again, just getting ready to talk on the radio again and recap uh, the Ryder Cup week. Yeah, and and speaking of the Ryder Cup week, what an epic week for you. Um, you know, I really was interested in having you on because a lot of people don't realize what it takes behind the scenes to sort of capture uh, an epic event like the Ryder Cup, which is, you know, basically, uh, if you want to call it the Super Bowl of golf for sure. Um, and, and someone like yourself who's uh, in charge of packaging that content and delivering it to millions of people around the world – um, I thought it'd be interesting to sort of, you know, take us a little bit behind the scenes and how you sort of organize that, plan for it. Uh, it's not something you put together overnight, for sure. No, it's definitely not that. And you kind of nailed it there at first, calling it the Super Bowl here. You know, it's something that comes once every year for us. And the Masters is obviously its own beast. It's this big juggernaut. But the Ryder Cup is by far, I think, the most fun event that we get to cover. And it's also become this, you know, this huge event on top of it there. 
And it's definitely definitely not something we plan one week out. I mean, this is an event <laughs> that we talk about every bit of two years in advance. And, you know, it's like each day you get closer and closer. You start brainstorming for literally, I think, as soon as one ends. I mean, like I said, this one just ended. And we're already talking now about the next one. Like, what should we do differently? We're recapping what we did now with this year. And what can we do differently two years ago? So that gives you just a broad idea on what it goes into it and how far in advance you're thinking about these things. And, you know, something we tried for the first time this year was, on top of our digital coverage we did in the magazine coverage, you know, we also hosted an event this year and, you know, something like that doesn't happen quick, you know, so we found a uh, nearby brewery, someone on our staff, Sean Zock is a local guy from Wisconsin. He scouted out a great spot for us. That was just a couple of miles away from, uh, from Whistling Straits. So we kind of had a dual thing going on this week where we hosted watch parties and one of our podcasts had a live show with Claude Harmon on Thursday night of, of Ryder Cup week. So it was a, it's a balancing game of how we capture content at this brewery where we have fan interactions and our shows, you know, filming all of our preview content, getting our staff collected there. And on the digital side, you know, we're planning stories out, like I said, two years in advance and more so in the months and weeks ahead of the events as the teams get finalized, because that's really what we're waiting on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the moment, the moment we know the teams, you know, we're having brainstorming sessions as a team. You know, a couple of dozen of the guys on the editorial team were all kind of whiteboarding it, but via Zoom these days, a little bit different there. Mm-hmm. Just assign like, what are the storylines we're looking for? You know, what who's going to do what? What assignments we're going to send out to the lead writers? You know, what can we do on site? Working with the PGA of America, like, what can we film? What are our, you know, what are our restrictions while we're there? What can and can't we do? And just kind of getting after it. It's one of those events that we're fortunately can do a little bit more compared to other events. The PGA Tour is a little bit tighter in terms of what we can do content wise, but the PGA of America is very loose and it, it allows us a lot of freedom. So uh, we try to have as much fun as possible with it. When you, um, you know, you start with the sort of, uh, I guess, the, as you said, the debriefing of the first event um, or the last event, I should say. And how much is that? Are you paying attention to metrics and um, engagement and, and how does that play into uh, how you plan for the future? Yeah, it, it takes into a lot. I mean, that's definitely we dissect, you know, if something did really poorly and we put a lot of time and effort into it, that's something we have to account for and be like, okay, this wasn't worth the time and effort we put into it. Mm-hmm. And there's also things that trigger where it's like, oh, well, we put no attention to this and it skyrocketed. Or it's like, okay, we got to adjust what we're doing next time and, you know, pivot to doing more of this. So it definitely plays a part in it there. And first and foremost, you know, numbers are great. You always want to study numbers and everyone should in, in our uh, digital world, mm-hmm. you know, but you also just have to listen to the audience. It's as simple as looking at, looking at replies, looking at the comment sections, you know, looking at the retweets and just seeing what people are talking about compared to what we're putting out there. That's something for me from a social standpoint, that's probably, it's not so much a metric, but it's just really getting to know your audience. I, I think we're studying that first and foremost. You know, you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle like when you're dealing with social media and things that are going to catch on. And sometimes, like you said, there are things you totally didn't think were going to happen and all of a sudden they take off. Or is it what, what, any particular thing that stares back at you right away that you're like, oh, my God, this was awesome and I didn't expect it to be? Um, you know, I, I think one of the guys out there that it's no shocker he's in the media all the time, but uh, Bryson has definitely become this kind of lightning <laughs> bolt figure. Sure. But, uh, you, know, it, you know, it's one of those things where you're, even though we knew all the attention would be on him, I don't think we knew how much would be on him and, you know, and how much positive attention was surrounding him that week. What really opened our eyes were like, you know, cause you know, you hear, you see mixed things on the internet. It's hard, you know, you're in this kind of small, looking at a small lens and you look at things on social media, what, when you get out on the course and you hear the cheers for this guy, like it's just totally different than what people might perceive on social media. Sometimes like when I walked in whistling straights, I haven't been to a lot of events in a couple of months. 
Bryson was the most popular guy on the course that whole week. I mean, he got roars and cheers going for the green on one, which was probably the coolest moment I got to experience the whole week there. But getting on top of that and going like, okay, like we got to make it, make sure we're on top of Bryson talking to him at the end of each day. And it resonated, you know, our audience wanted to hear from him. They wanted to see what he was up to, what he was thinking, what was going through his head. And, you know, that we just kind of pivoted to make sure we got more of that out there. It's so hard to capture what, you know, you're basically trying to give us a lens into um, to, that really sort of cuts through the insulated world of the of the public to give us a glimpse of um, uh, and just from someone like yourself. It's really fascinating the fact that you didn't even someone who is closer, let's say, than I am to the to the world. And, and you can imagine how far, you know. Uh, just regular people playing golf who are who are paying it somewhat attention. How distant and insulated they are from the real world. It's amazing how much even you were surprised. Who's somewhat a step closer than most to the reaction and the um, how much people were engaged with Bryson. Yeah, look, it's incredible. I mean, it's the Ryder Cup is a tough one to break through because you're talking about 24 of the best golfers on there. It's not a normal field where you got 120 guys out there. You know, crowds disperse and whatever it may be. But when you went out there, you're like, okay, you know, I got Rory eight holes this way. I got Brooks this way. I got Tony Finau, Jordan Spieth, JT. And just to see the crowd really resonate and kind of pivot and just crowd around whatever hole Bryson was on, it was like a circus attraction that people can get enough of. And, you know, you expect people to disperse a little bit when you have that much star power in the course at once. But, I mean, all, our, all eyes were on him, and, you know, he came through in a big way. So we kind of made sure that we uh, pushed that hard in our content front because that's what people wanted. It's incredible that he was able to demand such a spotlight, considering there are a fair number of really popular people that are um, and storylines that are associated with the Ryder Cup. Uh, I mean, you know, Steve Strick is a great guy. Phil Mickelson is now a, a vice captain. You know, there are a lot of different ways. You know, six. You know, I think there are six rookies, if not more, um, or, or right around six rookies. You know, just there's plenty of ways you guys could have gone, and and it's amazing that he was able to sort of you know, cannibalize it all of it. Yeah, like like I said, he was definitely the star of the show. He stole the week. I mean, when he drove the green on that on that first hole on Sunday, that kind of sealed the deal for the USA, and he got the crowd going like like few roars I've ever heard on the course outside of like a tiger roar. Mm -hmm. But I got to say, for one thing, even though we captured that essence so much on social, what I think our team did so well is that we knew that there were very good stories to tell outside that maybe aren't grabbing the attention on TV or social media, things that people aren't seeing that you want to make sure they get what it's really like on the property there. And some of the best stories I thought we did all weekend came on Sunday from some of our guys that covered the European team. You know, even though it was this onslaught, just seeing the emotion that was coming out from Rory, you know, watching guys like Lee Westwood and Ian Poulter probably playing in their last Ryder Cup. You know, we sent a good amount of our staff to follow the European team where the crowds weren't really out as much and didn't really, you know, weren't as interested in what was going on with those guys. They were just ready to party for USA. Sure. But those were, if you go back and look at golf.com, like those are some of the best storylines and best stories we wrote all week because it's just it was about the people, about their personal stories and kind of their history with this event. How, I mean, how exhausting is a, of a week is it? I mean, it's a pretty intense, you know, you said, I think you were out there for a week, you know, Monday to Monday. And you're doing you're, ho you're doing double duty with the with the hosting the event and the brewery, and then you're going out on the golf course. Um, you know, you probably hadn't been up that long since you were in college. 
Yeah, it, it, it's a lot. Like it, it, it takes a lot on you there. It's weird. You know, I'm not going to say we have the same strain as the athletes out there, but walking a course like Whistling Straits, I mean, for anyone that hasn't been out there, it is a tremendous piece of property. Like you're not just showing up at a golf course, you're showing up at a resort, you know, you're walking through multiple courses to get to certain holes. I mean, it takes you, when you went through those gates, it takes you a good 20, 25 minutes just to get to the first tee on that, at that place. Wow. So walking, you know, walking a place that's that, that's hilly, you know, it does take a lot out of you and you do it every single day. You know, you look at your phone, you know, at the end of the day, and all of a sudden you look at you look at your steps for the day, and you look at, it's like, all right, I'm 20,000 today, I'm 30,000 today, I'm, you know, I'm pushing 40 on certain days. So at the, end, at the end of the week, you know, you're certainly ready to go home and just sit on a couch and just watch the right a couple on TV, watch some highlights. So, you know, the stories and just chasing a good story overall for the audience, it's really, it's really what it's all about. It makes it worth it. But yeah, the event aspect definitely made it a double whammy. Like I said, I was spending a lot of my mornings over at the course, you know, wake up calls around 5, 5.30. And then, you know, I might close down the brewery and be at the brewery until 10, 1030 at night. And you do it all over again. So there's definitely long days. But look, it's not an office job. I can't complain about it when you're sitting, you know, on top and watching Whistling Straits I mean, in the middle of the day. It's, it's sure. hard to beat that. No, no doubt. How was the how was the host party? How was that event? And, uh, you know, how was it received? And, and what did you learn from that engagement? It was great. Like, it, like I said, this is the first time we've really done something of that magnitude. You know, we have a very successful show ourselves with uh, Colt Subpar. It's hosted by Colt Nose and Drew Stoltz. You know, Colt's played on the tour for a while. Drew was on the mini tour, and they're very well connected in kind of the uh, tour circuit there. So they, they get a good draw and some great guests. Mm -hmm. And we're fortunate to team up with uh, Claude Harmon, who's a DJ's coach. People might be familiar with him. He's coached a lot of guys on tour, and his father, Bush, has coached just about any big name you can think of in the past kind of sure. 20, 30 years on, on tour. So getting those two together, those three, those two shows combined, getting some insight from them and just seeing our audience really just like eat it up. You know, guys that know these tour players better than anyone, you know, talking about insight from Dustin Johnson, who went 5-0 that week, hearing from his coach what's going on with him and what his thinking throughout the week is just, you know, very fascinating. And we were, you know, we were pleasantly surprised to see our audience show up and show up in a big way. So it was a lot of fun. It's definitely going to be something that Golf.com looks to do moving forward at other ventures, you know, whether it's the U.S. Open, the Masters, whatever it may be. It's, we're going to be looking to do more of these. Well, I think I think the the brilliant move of it is the the combination of the two that you guys because as you said, um, Colt and Drew are sort of the young guns who are really connected to the to the tour today's tour, uh, and then you have the sort of iconic perspective of Butch, and the two um, are the perfect marriage. I think those those three guys uh, to really get both ends of the spectrum. Uh, you know, Butch with the stories and the and the perspective, and then of course. Uh, you know, I think uh, Drew and 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 um, Colt are like, you know, they're like golf's version of uh, Abbott and Costello. They're pretty funny guys. So um, really nice combination of, of content, a uh, group of guys to produce some really funny content throughout the week. Yeah, no, it's a great combo. Getting someone that's inside the ropes on the range all day with DJ like Claude is, you know, between Claude used to coach other guys on that team as well. So getting them to talk and, you know, getting the lightheartedness, I mean, Drew and Colt are very quick-witted, and they got a great audience. It was great to see supporters of that show come out and come out in a big way. So it was very cool for us. And, I, yeah, we're definitely looking into more of these. Obviously, you're working and behind the scenes, and you're, you're scrambling. And like you said, you're, you're running back and forth to these two different things. How much of the event were you able to sort of um, soak in? I know you were there. I saw your posts about, you know, on the first tee and, and watching – uh, Bryson drive the first green, but how much of the event were you able to sort of um, take in and enjoy and appreciate? 
Yeah, I think there's a few hours of each day where you got to put that aside for a minute and just, you know, you have to soak it in from a fan's perspective sometimes, kind of mm-hmm. take off your journalist hat or your content hat, whatever it may be. Because I do think when you step back and look at it from a fan's perspective is when you kind of find the best types of content, the best type of stories. So just walking around and, you know, even if it's just for an hour each day to step away and be like, okay, I'm not writing any notes. I'm not taking any photos, I'm not taking any videos. I think that's when something really hits you for ideas the most for us. So I think we're all very conscious to try to do that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I would take a couple hours each day, whether it was, you know, in the middle of the day, maybe at night, you know, maybe it's the twilight walking off looking straight, just looking at the sun with no players, whatever it is. And honestly, I think the most fun part of the day sometimes for us is, you know, when we wrap up after working 14, 15, 16 hour days, whatever it may be, just getting together, going out to dinner, you know, having dinners at like 10:30 at night which isn't that uncommon for some of us that were in New York City, but when you're in Sheboygan and places usually close at 8, 9 p.m. and you're convincing them to stay open an extra hour or two just for you because you worked all day. <laughs> right. Like for us, that's some, of like the, that's some of the most fun times for us at these big events. Sure. What was the vibe like on the grounds? Because it was sort of strange. I mean, obviously everybody was psyched because U.S. was really just dominating, but and sometimes you might think that that might lead to a – a sort of uh, dull vibe, if you will, like when it's it's just a total blowout. But uh, it doesn't seem like that was the case. You know, how would you describe the vibe on the grounds? No, like I said, it it definitely. I think the one thing that was missing, it was unfortunate, is that we didn't have kind of the European fan base there. Just with travel restrictions, it just wasn't possible this year, unfortunately. Right. And it definitely showed. And while the crowd was definitely rowdy, I mean, those people have been waiting for that event for three years to come out there. But when you don't have kind of that other crowd and the other chance to go against all day to get you even louder and more hyped up, it does allow you to fall off a little bit there. But, you know, to the crowd's credit, like they did say high energy the whole time. It was just unfortunate. I mean, it was, you know, 99.9% American fans. And you could walk through the whole property. And if you saw, you know, if you saw five European hats, like, you know, you were shocked. Right. Like that's how heavily skewed it was. So it was definitely a very big home field advantage. But I got to say, I know there's been some uh, history at past events here where some of the crowds might be a little harsh to the uh, the opposing team traveling, where I, that wasn't the case this time. You know, I thought there was some friendly banter overall, but, it, you know, it was more of a combination of loud cheers and just softer claps to the Europeans rather than, you know, booze or any kind of chance their way. So I thought that was nice. At least that it, was a, it was a very respectful crowd. They knew it. They knew no one was there to defend the, the other guys for Europe. Like, they were on their own out, out there on a the limb. So <laughs> it, it, it was kind of nice, the fact, to see it as a overall a very, very heavily skewed USA crowd. But I, I thought they did a good job at least being respectful to the Europeans as much as they could. Yeah, I mean, that atmosphere has got to be, if I if I could imagine, if both crowds are able to be come out and support um, without any restrictions. And it, it's more like a, you know, a big college football rivalry, right? I mean, it's, it has that kind of because you really need uh, the two crowd, the two um, fan bases really feed off of each other, and so when you don't have one, then it sort of it is a little limiting, and it sort of I don't want to say it sucks the air out of the room, but it sort of it, it, you, when you don't have that banter back and forth, and one group trying to outdo the other group, uh, it does take away from the from the vibe a little bit. It definitely does. Like, there's definitely moments where you know it would get a little bit louder. Like, while that first tee was awesome on Friday morning, you know, people are just bursting out and singing any song that comes to mind. Like, it's hard to sustain that all day when you have no one else to cheer over and go against and play a little ping pong with, go back and forth what your uh, your songs you've been waiting to sing for three years. So that that part was unfortunate, you know. But the the, the players are great. Like, this is as you won't see this kind of fan interaction with the players anywhere else. Like it's the one event where guys turn around, they talk to people, you know, they might even drink a beer if you toss it their way. 
they're pointing at people, they're laughing, they're joking, you know, they're, they hear a certain chant, they're playing up to it. So it, it's the one time every two years that we really get this kind of vibe and see guys kind of let their guard down while also focusing as much as you'll ever see them. Sure. It's kind of cool to see them, you know, smiling and laughing on the tee box, but the moment they step up the tee up, you see that face, you see that game face turn on. So it, it's very cool. It's unlike anything else I see in golf. Yeah, there's not a, not a lot of um, shotgunning of beers on the first tee at, no, at Augusta no. National or uh, you know, or the U.S. Open or anything like that. Um, I want to switch gears because uh, the show primarily, as you know, I like to keep it local. And I know that you like to, you know, following you on social media and knowing you, uh, I know you love to go to Alpha. Uh, you enjoy as much as anybody a you know a little uh, late afternoon round the golf and the twilight um, of the evening and and sort of and I know you like to go to Bergen Point a little bit and Bergen Point to me is you know I really enjoy that golf course I don't really think people even on Long Island understand how difficult that course could be if you played it from the tips in a late afternoon yep. when the wind is blowing twenty miles an hour um, that course can be brutal I mean I I always go to the back tee of the uh, par three. I've played, um, you know, I, 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 I love to play from back there on occasion. And, you know, it's a, um, what is it, number six, maybe, is it? Um, yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a, it's basically, you know, for me, it's almost, uh, you know, if it's playing 220 into the wind, it's like a forward for me. Um, but, it, you know, I don't think people have, a, a real appreciation for how difficult that golf course is, but it's a pretty well-balanced golf course. I enjoy playing it. Yeah, it, it, look, it, you know, I grew up in Babylon, so that was the closest course to me. And, you know, when you talk about, I'm not sure who the superintendent is. I wish I did because I love to compliment him because yep. the Bergen Point that I, the Bergen, the Bergen Point I knew growing up and the Bergen Point now was like night and day. It was definitely yep. a course that, you know, we might play once in a while, but we were always kind of eager to go play somewhere else on the island, you know, play the county course circuits, playing Timber, playing West Sayville, whatever it may be. Now, like, I, you know, I seek out Bergen Point tee times. Like, he's done a fabulous job over there. The course is just so much better. And like you said, like, it, it gets it gets windy over there. It's it's as tough as it gets. You know, I think even if you check the Suffolk County, you know, uh, courses on the website there, I think it lists Bergen Point as the championship course of the county courses circuit, and I'm not surprised by it. Yep. You know, I think Timber has the views. Like, I love Timber Point. Timber Point Blue is probably my favorite nine holes of any of the county course circuits. Sure. But from a complete course standpoint, like, I actually do think Bergen Point is the best 1 through 18 if you looked at the, uh, the Suffolk County courses today. And that's just, you know, I'm only talking about recent years because I, I think people might hear this. They might remember Bergen Point, a bad experience they had, you know, six, seven years ago when there was no rough. Everything was dirt off there. And, you know, greens were always, they were losing them a little bit and some patchy fairways. That's not the case anymore. You know, it was luscious. You know, they aerated like a month ago, and now the greens are rolling smooth and fast. Today, when I was just out there, I played today. You know, I, I teed off at 5 o'clock, and I was done at 6.40, right as the sun goes going down. So, yeah, that course has been great. That's definitely one of my favorites. And, you know, I, I bounce around typically from that. And the best page course is just out of convenience when, you know, it's something close to my home right now. Sure. Uh, and there's some people would be surprised and and – in, oh, by the way, for the record, the person you're looking to uh, pat on the shoulder is Tim Baker. He is the superintendent there, just so we know. Shout out to Tim Baker, who's the superintendent at Bergen Point. He does a fantastic job. Um, big shout out. Big shout out. And, yeah, I've always thought that the, even, you know, the greens were always in, in good shape, regardless of the rest of the course in the past. I'm a little older than you, but they've always sort of yep. had pretty good greens. Um, but Tim has sort of really 
brought the whole thing together for sure. Um, but there's some really quality holes there that you'd be surprised. Like I talked about, number six is a really difficult part three uh, playing into the wind, especially from the back. But I'm just thinking it's got drivable par, th- uh, drivable par fours like number nine. It's got yeah. really beast of a par four in like number 10, big dog leg left that usually plays into the wind. Um you know, it's really got a little bit of everything. Even those, so those, those back to ball, back to parallel holes on the back nine, um, uh, that uh, 14, playing 15. It fourteen fifteen with the water right there on the left and on the right. Um, you know, it's it's and it's not. You got to golf your your ball a little bit. Definitely, and and one thing it has that I think a lot of courses lack. It has a great closing hole. Like I think eighteen yeah. is like the most complete hole in the whole course. So it's actually nice when you end with a bang like that when you're building up and you're building up to a very tough, very long par four. So I, I like the fact that you're probably challenged. That might be the most challenging par four in the course, and I like that it ends that way. That's that's a really tough, stiff challenge. Yeah, and for people who don't know, it's like a little bit capish because there's like big mounding down the left side, and there's a water water housing on the left side, and you really have to challenge that side if you want to have a a, a sort a, a a fairly shorter shot. By fairly, I mean five iron or so, um, because right. if you play out to the right. You're talking over 200 to get home from there, and it, and that's a uh, into a crosswind that, depending on when you play it, can be can be hurting. Always, yeah. That last hole, that last hole, the wind's usually whipping a little bit there. So you're right. That's that's a, that's a tough one. When you're sitting 200 plus out in a par four, that's that's never a fun sight. Yeah, and even 17, that par three is no easy. Uh, uh, always seems to play really uh, not to the yardage. You really have to have a really good sense of and feel for that kind of, for that hole by playing it multiple times to, to really That's have a, a sense one. of the yardage. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned you mentioned earlier six going to the back tee box. I yep. think seventeen is, is another fun one when you play to the back tee box because you, you have to hit you have to carry the water the whole way. Yep. It's a little bit blind. You can't really see where your ball lands. You only get a glimpse of the green. So I, I think that's a very fun tee box to play from the tips as well. Even if you play the whole round from the middle tees. Like that part three, I think, is always worth playing the back for the hell of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, all over water, usually there's high reeds in the water, so that it creates this sort of um, – it's not blind, but like like you said, Tim, the uh, there's a sense of anticipation as you go around the water and around the reeds right. where you get a peak of like maybe where your ball landed up. And then there's yep. that sort of a, you know, um, you know, certain level of elation when you see your ball on the green there. Definitely. Yeah, that's a, that's a fun one for sure. There, that, that, that hole always gives me a hard time. I always have a hard time sticking that green for whatever reason. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. It's not it's not into the wind or down. It's not ever directly into the wind or directly downwind. It's um, because it plays east to west, and the south shore tends to blow uh, either offshore or onshore. Um, and so, and, and sometimes, and then you might get it in a quartering wind. So, uh, it, it really plays and it plays longer than it is just in general without the wind. So you really have to get a, you know, and I don't think you ever really get a true sense of the, the hole, but, um, it does take experience around that hole to sort of get it dialed in. Definitely. And like I said, they, they aired it early, so it's in great shape. And I, I think October is always the best month of golf around Long Island. You know, the, the weather is perfect for superintendents to cut it and have a little more fun with it, with the greens and around the greens. And you get these pure cuts on the fairways and rough. Yeah. So it's definitely in prime shape. Like I said, it's, it's my go-to spot, especially after work. So I'm so close convenient there. But yeah, I'm just I'm just pumped for October because the courses, it just doesn't get better than this right now. Yep. And I, I do like the uh, the late I'm, – I'm a late afternoon round kind of person there too, and it's fun because uh, you, you can practice a little bit. Um, you can, you know, sort of get a 
and you get to play in really difficult conditions, which is fun. So you're playing a lot of knockdown shots and, um, you know, it, it can be like sort of open championship conditions sometimes. Obviously, it's not fescue fairways and it's not really super fiery and firm. But uh, with the wind, you really have to really control your trajectory because um, you really, uh, you know, you can get it blown away on that golf course. Literally, like your ball can yeah. be blown all over the place there. Yeah, you get some fun atmospheres, and I'm with you. It's like, especially when you're working all day, if you get off and get your chance to get some steps in. Like, I'm a big you know, supporter of a push cart. Yeah, I bring my push cart everywhere. It's in my trunk at all times. Anytime someone calls me, I have that thing ready to go. <laughs> but after work, you work nine. You know, you walk nine holes. It's a good time just to get out, get fresh air. Like it's always, it's always the best weather. You know, you get some great conditions, like you said. So that that, that for me is my favorite golf to play is that twilight hour. Absolutely. Well, Tim, uh, you know, talking with Tim Riley, golf, golf com, director of social media. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I really appreciate it. It was great to get your perspective, um, you know, the behind the behind the scenes perspective for the Ryder Cup and capturing all that cool content that you got for the, on golf dot com um, and also talking a little Long Island golf. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Anthony. Let's play again soon. Absolutely. All right. That was Tim Riley, golf.com, director of social media. That's it for this week, folks. Thank you for joining me, and we'll catch you next week. You're listening to On Par with Anthony Scorcia.